The clerk will call the roll. Alder Eskridge. Hall. Harrington McKinney. Kemble. King. Palm. Fair. Rummel. Schmidt. Skidmore. Verveer. Wood. Zellers. Aaron. Balde. Bidarsilov. Carter. Cheeks. Clear. Alder Marvis. Excuse me. Quorum present. Council's in session. Alderman Cheeks. This time I'd like to move suspension of rules. Very good. Is there a second? Second. Motion to second on suspension. All those yep. in favor, aye. Aye. We need the motion. So, yeah, I'm, I didn't make the full motion. You, <laughs> like want, to make more, you want to do more than suspend the rules? 2.04, order of business. 2.05, introduction of business. 2.24, ordinances and 2.25 resolution for items so designated on the agenda. Second. Motion to second. On the question, which is adoption, all those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. We had at least 14 people on that one. Alderman Cheeks. Um, is there any early comment? Uh, we have one early comment from Susan Schmitz on number 16, supporting. Uh, Okay. That's okay. Um, so, no. I guess not. <laughs> um, all right. So, then I'd like to take up suspension of rules to take up tonight's consent agenda. Okay, motion. Is there a second to take up the consent agenda? And are you going to outline, um, outline what items will be exempted? We have a, excuse me for a moment. We have a couple of unique petitions on our agenda today that actually we should take up before we take up the consent agenda. Um, I'd like to move adoption of item number one. Motion is second to take up item one. This is a petition received by the clerk's office from Dennis Tiziani regarding attachment from the town of Westport to the city. The petition is to be referred to a future council meeting on to, to accept it tonight. To accept it tonight for an eventual referral to a future council meeting. There is a second discussion. Seeing none, all those in favor, aye. aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. We have a position number two. Is there a motion? Someone's. Uh, motion on no, item two, which is to accept the petition received from the clerk's office uh, from Yun uh, W. Lee of Hong Kong Metro Realty regarding detachment from the city of Madison to the village of Shorewood. This will also be referred to a future council meeting. Discussion? Seeing Second. Motion is second. Seeing none. On the question, which is uh, received, yes, Alderman Schmidt, discussion? The motion is to accept, I believe. Not yes. To, uh, to accept. Um, all the same is it will be, be referred to a subsequent meeting. Uh, all those in favor, aye. Aye. 
Aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. Alderman Cheeks. Thank you. Um, so at this time, I'd like to move suspension of the rules to take up tonight's consent agenda. Second. Motion and a second on taking up tonight's consent agenda. Uh, and what is that consent agenda? So, um, well, the it? consent agenda is um, everything except for items three through five, which are public hearings. Um, the items that will be excluded will be items number 12, 16, 27, and 52. Okay, so we have a motion on a consent agenda, which means every item will be acted upon as designated in the agenda with the exceptions of 3 through 5, 12, 16, 27, and 52. Are there any other items for exclusion? Alderwoman Rummel. Um, I note that number 13 says it's an informational report. Is that something that somebody's going to speak to today? Is that, Dave, is that your report? No, it's not. No, this is 12. That's urban forestry. We can separate 13. Okay. Our wall shows separation on 13. Any other items for separation? Um, we also have a, a note on number 62. Um, I'll just read it. So item number 62 is uh, legislative file number 39339, adopting and confirming labor agreement between the City of Madison and Teamsters Union Local 695 for uh, the period of March 10th, 2014 through December 31st, 2018. The new business for referral is the Teamsters Union Local 695 met on July 20th and voted to ratify the agreement. So the ordinance should be referred to the Board of Estimates. Correct. It will be referred to the Board of Estimates and then back to the Council. So we have a motion to adopt tonight's uh, agenda with the exception of 3 through 5, 12, 13, 16, 27, and 52. Yep. Anything else? On the motion, which is suspension to adopt this calendar, uh, all those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. That takes us to item three. Uh, declare a public hearing open. Um, what is it? It's not time for public hearings. Uh, any objection to going into item 12 at this time? Pardon? We should oh, do oh. one that would be quicker. All in clear? Uh, I move that we take up item 16 at this time. Motion to take up item 16 second. at this time. There's a second. That is a suspension motion to take up 16 on suspension on 16. All those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. It's really hard to do a determination of a voice vote when it's about 5 to 0. Let's try a voice vote one more time. All those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. We have item 16 before us. Can I have a motion on 16, please? Move approval on item 16. Second. Is there a second? There is. We have a number of registrations on this item. First is from Dave Molenhoff, supporting and wishing to speak. He will be followed by uh, Susan Schmitz. And we've got about three other people. Dave? Not? What the heck? No, okay. Wait a second. Excuse me, Dave, one second. Yeah. 
very good. It's backwards, but it works. <laughs> I'm not going to question it. Okay. Uh, my name is Dave Molenhoff, and I had the honor of serving um, as the chair of a citizen committee that looked very carefully at this ordinance. And uh, for those of 15 of you who were not on that ad hoc committee, I would like to share with you what an extraordinary process this ordinance went through. First of all, the committee met 20 times, and they did this over a 14-month period, and they produced, this is hard to believe, 12 distinct drafts of this ordinance. That's extraordinary. Now, why did it take so long, and why did it have to go through so many drafts? Well, first of all, it's a very complex and technical piece of legal writing. Secondly, there were a lot of things that needed to be fixed. And the third reason is that the five members of this ad hoc committee did an exceptionally thorough job of vetting this ordinance. For example, they went through it sentence by sentence, sometimes word by word, concept by concept, far more than I ever dreamed they would do. I'll give you a few other examples. Alder Badar Siloff looked up on the Internet some of the best ordinances in the country and presented them directly to the committee. She didn't have to do that. Alder Clear had his computer there. He looked up the instances where key terms were defined and what context in which they were used, so we used them consistently throughout. Alder Schmidt questioned everything. Alder Rubble offered her wise counsel as your representative on the Landmarks Commission. And <clears throat> uh, Steve King uh, insisted on being clear and practical in every single case. <laughs> Assistant City Attorney John Strange and Amy Scanlon. They did great work. I already mentioned that John did 12 drafts of this ordinance. He also helped the, helped the committee at several times when they got into an impasse, and he figured out creative ways of solving the problem that made a huge contribution. Amy made a superb presentation at the beginning of the process on the state of preservation practice in the United States and offered her wise counsel throughout the process. <clears throat> One more... <laughs> I was going to say some more about Mr. Clear, but anyway. Is there any objection? Thank you. Okay, so uh, even before this committee got the ordinance, uh, Stuart Levitan's Landmarks Commission worked for three years on it. So it's really pretty amazing. And uh, lobbyists for real estate developers were present at every meeting and testified, and they too made constructive suggestions. So I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that this is the, the definition of a very thorough ordinance vetting process. Now, what kind of an ordinance came through that process? I'll use three adjectives to summarize it. First of all, it's clear, it's fair, and it's effective. That's the kind of ordinance that this city needs. The old one is 44 years old. This one is a huge improvement. So in closing, I'm going to ask one thing. <clears throat> And that is the highest honor that you can bestow on this ordinance. And that is to approve it unanimously. Thank you. Thank you. The next registrant is Susan Schmidt, who will be followed by Jeff Recalderon.
Thanks, David. I won't speak as longly. You did, you were doing such a great job describing how it was. Um, my name is Susan Schmitz. I'm representing Downtown Madison Incorporated. And um, David described it really well. I'll just say a couple of things. Uh, October of 2004, DMI put together a white paper that outlined a renewed landmarks ordinance. And I just want to read to you the vision that we put in it. Madison's renewed landmarks ordinance will actively steward the cultural resources that together and separately make Madison and our local historic districts unique while encouraging community and private investment in and around these cultural resources to effectively promote a Madisonian quality of life aimed at attracting and retaining a vibrant and diverse workforce, providing an array of housing options, maintaining and encouraging investments in real estate, and promoting heritage tourism by clearly communicating and displaying our cultural resources to create a stronger and more sustainable community. And I just want to say these five alders that worked so hard did that. So um, I, on behalf of DMI and our, and our 50 member board and our 500 members, I want to thank you very much for your hard work. So, and I encourage this to be passed tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Next registrant uh, is Jeff, will be followed by Franny Ingridson. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, just wanted to say a few words on behalf of the uh, property owners and developers that I've represented through this process. Um, so I came into this issue after the kind of bruising battles that we all experienced over the past uh, five years especially and really wanted to bring a new approach to um, how especially the developer and property owner side of the community approach these issues. And so I think what we saw play out through this process is a very collaborative approach where we looked for solutions on how we can, can really approach historic preservation in a way that works for uh, preservationists and property owners and, and other stakeholders. So the resulting ordinance that you have before you tonight is really a, a product of that collaborative process. And so I encourage you to to approve it tonight, and I'll just also say that I hope that th this collaborative spirit that we've built through this process continues to, to carry through as we move from uh, adoption of the ordinance into actual implementation, and, and there will be questions that arise as we kind of move through how this new ordinance gets uh, implemented, but uh, I think we've set a pretty good framework for um, how to, to work through that process going forward, so thank you. Thank you. Uh, Franny, who will be followed by Bert Stitt, who will be followed by Stuart Levitan. I would also like to thank the Landmarks Ordinance Review Committee for all their hard work. I, too, support the resolution. What is it about Madison that makes it such a special place for residents and visitors alike? In 1971, this community understood that if it didn't protect and preserve the city's historic resources, Madison would begin to look like every other city. Their foresight resulted in the adoption of Madison's first landmarks ordinance that has protected and preserved much of what remains of the city's historic resources. Today, these same 19th and early 20th century landmark buildings, historic districts, streetscapes, and other historic resources 
greatly contribute to our city's reputation as a truly unique and beautiful place to live, work, and visit. Preservation values are community values. After 44 years, this, commu this community once again must decide if it values its historic resources that have set Madison apart from other cities. All preservation ordinances are grounded in preservation principles and practices. Every municipality that adopts a historic preservation ordinance does so because of the proven long-term benefits that are gained when a city identifies, protects, preserves, enhances, perpetuates, and conserves its historic resources. I'm confident that Madisonians understand this simple truth. Historic buildings are a scarce resource. We're not building any more of them. Now that phase one has been completed, we will soon be moving into phase two, where the focus will be on our local historic districts. Do city residents want our past to have a future? I'm looking forward <clears throat> to the community-wide outreach sessions that hopefully will occur in order to assess the value that our entire community places on Madison's irreplaceable historic resources. Thank you. Uh, Bert Stitt, followed by Stuart Levitan. Uh, thank you. I uh, just want to say a couple words about more about the process uh, on the neighborhood side of this. Uh, I'm so impressed with the work that the uh, Preservation Alliance has done to support the LORC committee in their work and the uh, level of, I would say, gravitas that they went to to uh, make sure that their work was work that um, could be taken seriously and uh, without rancor, a very important part of all this. This ordinance re uh, rewrite, uh, when it was initiated, instilled an incredible amount of fear in the hearts and minds of people who are real um, advocates of historic preservation. And uh, I'm pleased to say that um, uh, I was asked to uh, advise on how we could go about um, uh, moving through this with integrity and uh, with support. And so I was happy to uh, provide some of that support and uh, be present for a lot of the conversations, certainly not all of them. And uh, I'm just as pleased as I can be that from as, uh, what I understand that the development community and the historic preservation community both support this rewrite. That is remarkable uh, in the current status of uh, many public conversations in our communities today. So uh, thank you very much and I look forward to a, an approval of the ordinance uh, re rewrite or whatever it is you're voting on. I don't even know. I'm kind of uh, not in the, uh, the, the detail of all this, but uh, I just want to make sure that there's an awareness that uh, the, the community has, uh, I think, done well on all sides. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Stuart Levitan. 
Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Stuart Levitin, 4181 Cherokee Drive, on behalf of the Landmarks Commission. When the Landmarks Commission finished its work redrafting this ordinance a little over a year ago, I thought we'd done a pretty good job. I thought, you know, we're the Landmarks Commission. We know what we're doing. I'm a good draftsman. We did a good job. I had no idea how much better this ordinance could be until I saw the work of the Alliance, the Lord, and city staff. What you have before you tonight is practically state-of-the-art in terms of historic preservation, and it, pro and it provides clarity, uh, clarity of definition, clarity of process, clarity of understanding, so that the development community and the historic preservation community uh, can both celebrate what you have before us. I want to give special thanks to the Alliance, David and Jim Matson, and, every and everyone who is in an advocacy role uh, on behalf of historic preservation. I want to thank Lork, the fact that five really important, really busy alders realized the political constituency for historic preservation and put so much time and effort and energy into mastering the material and doing the good job that was required, I think is one of the most important takeaways I take from this, that you understood the importance and you did a good job. I also want to salute city staff uh, we all knew what a great job Amy Scanlon would do as the preservation planner. Uh, at the risk of embarrassing uh, Assistant city, city Attorney John Strange, I have to say in my 40 years or so of being around government lawyers, I've never seen anybody do such a job as he did on this ordinance in terms of mastering the material, understanding the issues, absorbing the comments of Lork, Draft, the technical expertise is just turning drafts around in incredibly expedited fashion, but also understanding the debate and helping the, the LORC uh, fashion the solutions that, that it was getting to was really a masterful job. And, and I just want it on the record what a great job John and Amy did on, on your behalf. Uh, I'd be happy to try and answer any questions, but as you've heard tonight, this is something that we can all celebrate. The development community celebrates this. The preservationist community uh, celebrates this. And I'm looking forward to my last eight months as chairman of the Landmarks Commission with this ordinance. Uh, uh, looking forward to, to implementing it, and uh, I appreciate your support. Thank you. Thank you. We have additional registrations from Dan O'Brien supporting available to answer questions. Also, not wishing to speak, but supporting. Uh, John Schlafer, Bob Clubba, David Waugh, John Martins, Lee Mollenhoff, Jason Tisch, Steve, who's the only one here whose name I can't read, maybe Fabic or Fabic, uh, Catherine Rankin, Jean Rankin, and Fred Mose, and Michelle Jolly and Christy Solberg. Are there questions of any of the registrants? Alderman Bedar? It's not a question, just commenting. There's no questions. Discussion then, Alderman Bedar. Um, thank you, um, Mr. Mayor. So thank you so much for those of you who, um, who spoke um, in support of, of this ordinance. I just wanted to take a couple minutes, and I, I don't want to um, label the point, but I do want to say that this was a process that really worked very well. Um, of having five others really intensively um, dive into a topic. We've done it also previously um, in, um, uh, for the TIF um, rewrite. So 
something I think for us as a, as a council to think about as a process that seemed to, to really work well and um, yield good results um, that gets really support from um, all sides of, of the conversation because we can really, really understand an issue and there is um, good conversations that happen in those smaller um, uh, settings with, with five others present. Um, with that, um, I want to especially thank our ex-official member of the committee, which is Alder Zellers, who was present at almost every single committee and really contributed um, very, very greatly to our work. Um, so she may not have been um, on the committee, but she really was um, and really contributed. So I don't want to forget about your contributions. Certainly the, the alliance and all the expertise that they brought forward um, was amazing. Um, and just a lot of work um, put into um, the, the information that they would bring to, to the committee. And certainly Jeff and all the work that he did also was, was really good in our conversation. So thank you. But um, I especially want to thank three people, um, our staff. Um, you heard about Attorney Strange. So I want to just reiterate that he's pretty amazing um, because we, we were a difficult group um, to, um, to try to um, rein in our discussions. And we really did look at the dictionary and went word by word at times. Um, and Amy um, Scanlon was um, a great support and provided really good guidance and expertise um, to the committee. And then last but not least, our fearless leader, um, the chair of the committee, um, Alder Schmidt, um, did a great job to start with in scheduling meetings because <laughs> it wasn't easy <laughs> to try to get five of us to have additional meetings. Um, and we worked hard. We worked on Saturday mornings, and, but we got it done in a year, which is, seems like a long time. But um, I think, we, as you heard, we have a really good, good ordinance before us. And I just honestly, I can say that um, it is one of the highlights of my years as an alder. Um, to have been able to end up with um, a product that I feel really confident about and I feel like has really good support. And if every process that we engage into would end up with such great result, I would be just the happiest alder on earth. But I'm happy tonight. <laughs> Alderman Rommel. Thank you. Um, I know we're just piling on all the love, but uh, really... When, when Bert mentioned the fear going into it, I kind of shared that. Like, you know, it was a mixed group of alters, several with not as much experience as me. I served on the Landmarks Commission during you know, at least three of the years of the, the rewrite. And, and, and as Mr. Levin Stewart said, we, you know, we thought we did a good job when we presented it, but we really turned the ordinance upside down through the guidance and um, contributions of the preservation and real estate um, advocates that showed up at every meeting and everybody of that group did research best practices around the whole country I mean they came in with ordinances and clipped and then cross clipped you know you, you left out this part and just was like every meeting we got so much documentation we had a rule where you had to give it in advance so we could read it so but it was a really engaged process so again you know others have said how great it was but when we look at the ordinance, and I hope you had a chance to read um, Assistant City Attorney Strange's um, drafters analysis, it's a really good summary for those of you who will wade through it. And um, for me, you know, having, uh, we have five historic districts in the city of Madison. Three of them are in District 6. So 
It's and they arrange. So one's kind of something not a whole lot's going to happen in the bungalow district. No one's going to come probably and want to tear stuff down and build tall things. But you know, Willie Streets and and first settlement are often the subject of a lot of intensive. Uh, pressure for development. So what I really, you know, there's many good things about this ordinance, but the one I would really point out to you is we we strengthened incredibly property owners' obligation to maintain their property. So no one can come to you and say, well, you know, it's just so far gone that all I can do is tear it down because it would cost so much money to fix it. Well, you know what, if you own a property, you're supposed to routinely invest not only in just maintenance, but life systems on a regular basis. So you really shouldn't have that excuse. There's buildings in this world that are hundreds and hundreds of years old. I mean, it's not like impossible to imagine a building could last more than 80 years. So we strengthen that. So there now is a definition of demolition by neglect that people will then be held to. And so you can't just you know, turn something over for assembly and demolition. And sometimes you, but we also created variances and we still have an appeal process. So if you make the case, you can make the case. So we still have a, a rationale. So I'll stop there with all the, the lauding. Because um, I think the big thing is going to phase two. Uh, somebody already mentioned that. And what I learned through this process is we have a lot of education to do among people who live in historic districts. I don't know, I mean, at least in mine, they're more a homeowner and they turn over. I think I've noticed. At Landmarks, a lot of younger owners coming in to do work, and it's really exciting. But also, they maybe don't know, not everyone knows, what it is to live in a historic district. So when we go forward, and this is like a call out to our um, planning division managers, we really do need a cultural planner to assist our preservation planner when we, as we go through this next phases. We need to be able to do this right and make sure we do really good engagement and education of property owners. So I, I agree with um, David. I hope you will support it unanimously. And I think everybody was really enjoyable, even though I was afraid at first. I got over it. And we really worked it and got it to be like amazing. It really, really was amazing. And, and again, John Strange is brilliant. So thank you for lending <laughs> us this attorney who I think has, you know, done his great duty for this committee. So thank you. Thank you. I'm not going to repeat all the lauding thank yous except for two, but I'll just include those by reference. I hope no one's offended, but I do want to call out Amy Scanlon and John Strange yet again. They were just amazing throughout this, and uh, um, I can't imagine we would have gotten anywhere near where we were without them, so thank you two very much. Alden Clear. Thank you. Um, I just want to highlight what Alder Rummel just said about the uh, obligation to maintain with the delightful irony of this coming one day after Landmarks Commission approved the essentially rebuilding of the Orpheum Theater sign, which got into the situation that it is exactly because uh, it wasn't maintained and was allowed to uh, literally almost rust away. Um, had that conversation with a reporter this morning who was asking me, you know, what's different about this ordinance and how does it relate to the Orpheum sign? And it doesn't really specifically relate to it, except that perhaps there won't be any more Orpheum signs to get into that situation. So um, I did have a little bit of a panic when I actually went back and read the staff report from last night's Landmarks uh, meeting, and uh, it mentions that the because the Orpheum sign uh, intrudes into the State Street right away, it required a 
waiver from uh, the building inspection director, and I had a panic of, oh, my God, did we include that part in the new ordinance and opened it up, and thank goodness, yes, we did. It's still in there. So um, all I's and T's still crossed and dotted. Um, but uh, uh, repeating also all the thank yous, especially to our amazing staff who did uh, terrific work on this. Thank you. Alderman King. Thanks, Mark, because now I have to talk. I'm not going to be the fifth, the only one who didn't say anything. Uh, <laughs> I'll be clear and concise. I will back up to what Alder, uh, my classmate, Alder Vidar-Silov said, and say ditto to every single word in hers, because uh, she covered it all quite eloquently, as usual. And I will say that as the Alder who has the district in Madison, where in my first term I allowed the demolition of the only even remotely historic thing in my district to take place, which is the little school that Nan Fay attended when she was a little girl, um, and it's now a multi-family, three-story building, um, and it still was the right decision of you knew what, what I was talking about. Um, but I, I learned a lot in this process. Uh, uh, I learned a lot also because I was sitting next to the sixth member of the committee, which was Alder Zellers, whose heart is really, um, really well placed on this topic, I would say, and it counts for a lot. And um, uh, I'm really glad that she was involved in the discussions and was sitting there and um, participative in, in everything that we did. So thanks, everyone. Unanimous vote. Bye. <laughs> Any further discussion on the question? Seeing none, we'll come to a vote on adoption. All those in favor, aye. Excuse me, Alderman Cheeks? Nope. No? All those in favor, aye. That was an aye. All those opposed, no? Aye. The vote is unanimous. The motion carries. Uh, you all know no outbursts. Alderman Cheeks? Um, I think at this time, the uh, public hearing would be okay. in order. We'll go to public hearings, declare a public hearing open on item three, of the uh, creating a section of the Madison General Ordinances on a zoning at 501 Welsh Avenue in the 6th District. The uh, recommendation is to re-refer the public hearing on the item. Uh, therefore, I will not declare the hearing closed, but will now entertain a motion to re-refer this matter and the, the item and the public hearing. Is there a motion? Motion to re-refer the public hearing on item three. Thank you. Second. Is there a second? There is. On re-referral, all those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. Declare a hearing open on item four, uh, amendment uh, creating a section of the general ordinances to change zoning at 409 East Main in the 6th District. Hearings open. The recommendation of the Council is to adopt. Uh, there are no registrations. Declare the hearing closed. And at this time, I'll take a motion to adopt item 4. If you'll so move, Alderman Cheeks. Yep, motion to adopt uh, item 4. There's a second. There is on the question. All those in favor, aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. Item 5. Creating a section of the ordinances to change the zoning of property generally addressed at 109 South Fair Oaks, also in the 6th District. The hearing is open. The recommendation of the Council is to re-refer. A motion would be in motion. order to re-refer the item and the hearing. Alderman Cheeks. Motion to re-refer the public hearing on item number 5. Second. Motion is second. Discussion? Seeing none. All those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. Uh, 
this time, in numerical order, we would take up item number. I'd like to take up item number 27. We have, public, uh, we have speakers registered on 27 and 52, so we're going to take those up before we do the uh, presentation. So, motion to suspend to take up 27. And the rules and take up number 27. Second. Motion is second on the question of suspension. All those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. On item 27, is there a motion to adapt? Motion to adopt 27. Thank you. Is there a second? There is. Alderman Eskridge. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Mayor. I just have a couple questions for staff really quickly on this one. Where's Eric there? Do you want, let's, let's take the registrants first, oh, and yes. then I'll come back to you, okay? Okay. Uh, we have a registration from Jason Robert Van Pelt, supporting wishing to speak. And we have... Um, Bob Kleba and David Waugh, both supporting and not wishing to speak. Heartful hello, the city of James Madison. The list of parks being considered on this agenda, item number 27, could include Sherman Village Park and Linden Grove Park. These parks are in the Sherman Village Neighborhood Association. District 18. Parks are the hearts of communities. Sherman Village Park is the heart of Sherman Village. Currently, park enthusiasts bring their canine companions and their pet dogs on a Sherman Village Park path, and dogs are prohibited there. They don't have anywhere else to go. They need an alternative. Linden Grove Park doesn't have a City of Madison Park Commission sign posted. It doesn't have playground equipment. It's basically an open field. Linden Grove Park could be a dog off-leash park if a fence is put around there. The speed limit is reduced to about 10 miles per hour around Linden Grove Park, so it is a good spot. Each neighborhood association with parks could have at least one dog park for all the community members to go there with their dogs. So perhaps Sherman Village Park and Linden Grove Park can be included in the pilot program to expand dogs and parks policy. Or maybe in the future they can be put on there eventually. Thank you. That's the only speaker. Um, let's see. Alder Eskridge. Thank you. Um, so I was just saying, I have a couple questions for staff. Eric knows I've gotten a couple of concerned emails from residents in District 13, particularly around Wingra Park. So I wonder if you could just outline for everyone, Eric, some of the parameters around this pilot program, how enforcement will work, um, and how evaluation is planned for the pilot? Absolutely. Um, the, the, first, the first item to, 
that I want to make sure is clear is this is a, a pilot program uh, authorized only through April uh, of next year with the intent of doing exactly, I think, some of the questions you asked me to address, which is evaluate kind of what's happening now, how we enforce those, those existing rules, and whether or not uh, modification of those rules can create a better outcome and a better public policy. Um, it, it's my opinion, I've shared with each of you and with many members of the public, that it's a, the existing policy has failed. Uh, I'm not sure what the outcome will be, but this pilot would help inform that. Uh, what will happen is in these uh, selected parks that were selected with input from alders and neighbors and a, and a survey was conducted, we will uh, establish a consistent signage but a limited signage change so we're not investing in large amounts of signage changes for what is a, a nine-month program. Uh, but that will make it clear and apparent where uh, dogs on a path would be uh, allowed. We'll put that on the website and promote it out to the neighborhood associations. Uh, to be quite frank, we we won't reach everyone perfectly, but the dogs are already there in most cases. The things that are going to be noticed the most in these parks is that the ranger presence will be, uh, you know, substantially. I won't say significantly, but substantially more. Uh, more apparent because we want to make sure we go through our ranger protocol which is education first and making people aware because one of the things that we know any expansion of dogs and dog opportunities on our park system has to be tied to licensed and permitted dogs which means safe and healthy dogs um, and so that you know that's the first step the the second is that we are clearly uh, indicating that on leash within that six foot of a path range uh, is really important. Uh, a part of our strategy we've been talking about internally is an open letter to dog owners. Um, you know, frankly, putting it up on dog owners to say that this, hopefully tonight, this council, the park commission has, staff has recognized the policy that we have is not working. But for us to change and modify that policy, dog owners are going to have to be a key part of self-policing and self-regulation and taking responsibility for cleaning up after their dog. Um, honestly, for the alders, I suspect one of the things you'll hear is during this enforcement period, there will be folks who get ticketed for things that we haven't before done. Uh, Off-leash is one. Leaving waste, we've always done. If we catch it, we'll continue to but we will probably catch, very possibly catch more folks. So some of that's going to play out as we go through this pilot. And we want to make sure we gather information in 13 places across the city with a variety of alders, a variety of neighborhoods. We'll do surveys during that process, uh, similar to what we did already, which, you know, is not perfectly scientific, but it gives us information. Park staff will attend a neighborhood meeting or neighborhood meetings if there are multiple neighborhood associations involved at each one of these areas and working with you as an alder. And we would hopefully be able to come back right in April with kind of a recommendation for next steps to the Park Commission and the Council. Did I address your questions? Uh, Alder Carter is next, but there's a, a late registrant. If there's no objection, I'd like to bring up the registrant. We've got Henry uh, Hemper. Do you mind, Alder Carter? No, go ahead. Is there any objection? Thank you. Mr. Humper, is that right, Henry? It's backwards. Hit the other side. Go ahead. Well, thank you. Thank you, uh, Mr. President, members of the, the uh, 
audience, and uh, my name is Henry Hemp. I'm here in support of the pilot program described in number 27, your item number 27. I live in the Garner Park neighborhood, and in fact, I'm president of the uh, Hill Farm University uh, Neighborhood Association. Although I will add uh, the disclaimer that the association takes no official position on the matter. In fact, uh, what it has advocated in the past was a survey of neighborhood sentiment about dogs and attitude to, toward dogs in the uh, in the park, and uh, it continues. Uh, to support the surveys that were already taken in which uh, you have, I believe, the results in front of you uh, today. My own involvement and motivation uh, to get involved in this particular issue started a couple of years ago when our granddaughter was up here from Houston. She bonded with one of our uh, two dogs. It's a large monster lander about the size of an English setter. And she became a very, she was eight years old at the time. She became a very proficient dog sitter, dog walker, and was very disappointed to learn that even though we live less than, a, well, probably a block and a quarter from Garner Park, that the ordinances did not permit her to take the dog on a leash in the park. So uh, I started by talking with uh, Park Superintendent Eric Knepp. And he uh, agreed to a, a meeting that involved other Garner Park neighbors in which, uh, who had expressed an interest in, in uh, getting things uh, rearranged. And he explained that the existing ordinance had a vintage of about 52 years. And that, and that, which would about jibe with what your city attorney told the Capital Times I read, is a 1963 law. Um, to my surprise, I will say that although uh, Mr. Knapp. Uh, indicated his, his uh, cooperation with and that he would implement the, uh, the survey. Any objection to that I think actually, one more minute? Uh, that actually uh, uh, had been earlier suggested to him by older person Schmitz. Uh, and he went ahead with it, but to my surprise, he, in, he expanded the project to include the entire city. Uh, of uh, other other city parks and the neighbors there, and you've got the the uh, you have the statistics on that. Ninety-one percent of the of the uh, Garner Park uh, people who were who were surveyed, eighty-four percent of the entire city uh, people uh, supported this. Now I'm as I say I'm here to support this. The dog owners. Uh, you know, we pay taxes that support our parks, and we uh, would like to think that we have a right to use 
those roost parks responsibly uh, and enjoy them with our dog. And that's a big provision from as far as we're concerned. We believe those dogs should be under reasonable control. We believe that includes having them on a leash at, uh, at least a six, that is at six feet, not more than six feet long, not allowing them off the uh, sidewalks of, uh, of the park more than six feet, and that would also keep them on the sidewalks Thank you, sir. Uh, and keep them away from uh, the park shelter areas. So that's about all I'm here uh, to say, except to to uh, thank the older persons who took the time and the interest in the issue uh, to support this. Uh, certainly, Sir, uh, you're, you're, out of, you're out of time. Of thank you, Superintendent. Knapp. Thank you. Thank you. Alder Carter, did you still want to be recognized? For Eric, um, Eric, what is the current policy for, I mean, we know that dog owners do go into the parks um, with their dogs, even though it's not uh, legal. So what is the policy for cleaning up the parks now of byproduct? And how is that going to differ once um, this ordinance passes because I can truly say, Eric, that Prada and dog waste should never be in the same sentence, and I've experienced it. Uh, uh, did you say Prada? Uh, okay. I, I'm not familiar with Prada. Uh, yeah, nicer shoes than I'm wearing. Uh, but the, the, the answer to your first question, the current policy, uh, is that that would be illegal? Not only are you violating the ordinances by having your dog in a park where you shouldn't, you're also violating other portions of our municipal code related to picking up after your dog. And in fact, as a you know, since we're on city channel, I would remind folks that under our ordinances, uh, you are actually supposed to have a mechanism for taking waste with you from your dog at any point you leave your private property within the city of Madison. Uh, and we would encourage folks to do that. The current cleanup is often, unfortunately, where where folks do leave it by not cleaning up after their dog individually is born often by neighbors or user groups. And in certain parks that were suggested for this pilot, we did not consider them for that exact purpose because there was a consistent uh, situation where dog waste had been left routinely, and we did not want to encourage that behavior in any way. Uh, there were two specific parks we looked at in that regard. Uh, under this new, and uh, under the new pilot, if you will, the the law would remain the same. My hope is that we, quite frankly, is that we can uh, actually successfully enforce that provision in a couple instances, because it, it is a serious offense for health and for the enjoyment of the parks, and and quite frankly, it's it's. As a dog owner, I, I would tell other dog owners it's just incredibly rude and disrespectful of the public space. Uh, or when you're on a walk in someone's yard, I mean, it just it just is. But we haven't caught anyone in the last 12 months. I did confirm this, and that is not because our rangers are not any good. It's just there's a lot of you know area to cover. Uh, but yeah, the policy doesn't change that at all. The expectation is there. Our hope is by 
validating the use in certain areas, we will see uh, kind of communal interest, like I said, from dog owners, that there's a shared responsibility. You heard Henry speak to it. He clearly gets it. He spoke to that in his neighborhood about that need to be responsible, and we hope that does actually help the system on that issue. Thank you. Seeing no one else in the queue, uh, there's no further discussion. We have a motion on the floor to adopt item 27. All those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Any abstentions? Uh, the ayes have it. I'd like to move to suspend the rules. Take up item 52. Is there a second? Pick up item number 52. The substitute adopting the employee benefits uh, handbook for general municipal employees. I need a vote on the motion to suspension. Oh, sure. Let's do suspension first. Um, we'll vote on uh, suspension of the rules. All those in favor, aye. Aye. Post no. All right. Now we'll take up item. Move approval of item 52. Thank you, Alder Schmidt. Um, on 52, we have public registrant. Can you? All right. We have Neil Rainford. Not entirely confident that one works. Let's see. Oh, there we go. Awesome. We'll flip flops here today. Thank you, Alder Cheeks. Uh, thank you, members of the council. My name is Neil Rainford, and I'm here tonight to speak to you regarding item number 52 and to speak to you and ask your, for your support of item number 52. Um, and I'm here on behalf of the employees of the City of Madison who are members of uh, um, Local 6000. Um, <clears throat> item 52 establishes an employee handbook, which is largely the predecessor of the uh, collective bargaining agreements that represent that uh, covered um, a majority of the city's employees um, in the city hall uh, and support bargaining unit and the um, um, and the parks and um, other uh, library um, bargaining units um, tonight is you know in some regards historic in that um, it uh, in the wake of the um, developments of 2011 um, it and the uh, major modifications to a long-standing system of employee relations um, that functioned here for 40 or 50 years in the city. Um, the city's elected officials and the employee association leaders have um, developed a, a new process of, of working together and continuing a relationship that um, spans uh, really a great uh, period of time. I mean, it started probably in the late 1930s with a handful of employees in the Parks Department and the City Hall who formed Local uh, 60, um, the predecessor to Local 6000, and um, uh, really started a relationship that was recognized by the city in a conversation that's gone on now for uh, some some 75 or, or more years. Um, and, and I think we, uh, we would certainly submit has um, resulted in uh, both uh, better morale, better employee allegiance, and ultimately better service to the public. Um, I want to take a minute to uh, um, 
ask for your support um, for the handbook tonight and for uh, it as the kind of final piece of of uh, the handbook, the ordinance modifications, the process for making annual changes to the handbook, um, which includes the Employee Relations Committee and, and of course, the, the council itself. Um, and lastly, to uh, just recognize um, some of the work um, that went into um, creating this handbook, um, which spanned many, many meetings and uh, many, many dozens, if not hundreds of hours. Um, um, that includes uh, folks on the handbook committee and local uh, 60, now 6,000, and local 236, um, the Madison City Attorneys Association, um, certainly also the human resources um, staff and the city attorney's office, um, and then lastly, uh, but certainly not least, the elected officials, including yourselves, who um, had the wisdom to uh, see this relationship through. So thank you again. Good night. Thank you, Neil. We have two additional registrants not wishing to speak, Lori Keefe and uh, Tom Campbell. Um, thank you. Do we have any, um, any questions for the speaker? <coughs> Any discussion? No discussion. Brilliant. Um, so there's a motion on the floor to adopt item 52. All those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Any abstentions? Brilliant. Uh, the ayes have it. Uh, and 52 passes. Um, Schmidt. We'll take up item 12. Is there a second? Thank you. Um, at this time, we'll have Dave Schmidt come up and uh, give us a presentation on the budget outlook. Great. Thank you. Um, yes, I'm going to run through the uh, uh, budget outlook and uh, talk about uh, sort of where we've been, uh, where we are for this year, and where we're going for 2016. Um, many of you may have seen this uh, at the Board of Estimates. It's the same presentation, and I will try to walk through it quickly. Uh, so first of all, just to summarize quickly, um, we, uh, our general fund reserves are strong. They're close to our target. Uh, our uh, 2015 estimated um, actuals are on track compared to budget. We do have a cut for recycling aid that will affect the 2016 budget, about $175,000. When we look at uh, our growth in uh, net new construction, which drives the levy limits, uh, we will see some revenue growth, but levy limits are still a major constraint on our ability to um, address uh, needs within the uh, city budget. Um, when we look beyond 2016, um, our commitments uh, are growing faster than the levy uh, will um, cover based on levy limit projections. And um, as uh, many of you who sat through the and worked through the uh, Board of Estimates review of the capital budget and the capital improvement plan, uh, if we fully implement what's in that, we will um, have issues around the rate of growth in property taxes. So quickly, when we look at 2014, we closed the books that we issued our comprehensive uh, annual financial report um, a few weeks ago. And again, um, as I talked about, our reserves are strong, close to the targets. 
uh, of 15%. We did have revenues down slightly from budget, um, and you can see the areas that were affected. Uh, we did have to pay on a um, what is expected to be a property tax refund because of the outcome of a um, tax case related to the uh, Attic Angels property on the west side. Our uh, utility pilots were down because of um, the, what the state did in terms of providing property tax relief by dropping the amount of um, property taxes for tech colleges. Um, our fines and forfeitures um, were down, and that really reflects um, fewer uh, traffic law enforcement uh, actions, so fewer traffic violations, as well as um, fewer parking violations because of the uh, uh, multi-space meter, which sort of reducing the number of tickets and increasing um, the parking utilities revenues. Um, and then our investment income, uh, we sort of came back based on a mark-to-market adjustment, which looks at the par value of our investments. And um, our net expenditures were down about $2.5 million, primarily in fringe benefits and the contingent reserve. And then another issue we'll have to address in future budgets starting in 2016 is um, we have a deficit in our fleet service internal uh, service fund, and we have not been charging back enough depreciation costs to the agencies, which are primarily levy-supported agencies. So that issue we'll have to address over the next uh, few budgets. When we look at 2015, uh, revenues are under budget. That's primarily due to building permits. Uh, while they're still growing, they're not growing as quickly or as rapidly as they have in the past and as we had built into the budget. Fines and forfeitures are down, again, for the reasons I talked about before. Room tax is doing very well. We had a strong first quarter, and uh, we look to that to continue through the rest of the year. Um, expenditures at the moment are below budget. Most of that is because uh, the contingent reserve is, um, you know, is not, not much of that has been expended. Uh, we do, did lock in the fuel savings, as you're aware of, and that helped to um, uh, fund an additional pay increase in, uh, uh, earlier this year. So when we turn to 2016, based on the numbers we have right now and projections and assumptions we make in those projections, we have what we call advanced commitments, and I'll get into what those are, of almost $15 million. Um, and we have an allowable levy increase under the state's levy limits of about $8.5 million, plus our other revenues besides property taxes to the general fund are expected to be down about $1.6 million. So we have a gap approaching $8 million. The gap is changing as we get um, updated data, particularly um, uh, pension system rates, where we will see some savings there, the actual health insurance rates that come in, and if we do make plan design changes to health insurance, that will affect costs. Um, the estimates uh, do not affect anything on the room tax, although the room tax effects we will see in the 2017 budget because of, of um, late action in the budget that was ultimately adopted. And there's nothing in these numbers related to new initiatives. These are funding things that we're doing right now um, with the exception of pay increases for, um, uh, for city staff that are um, due to occur for police and fire and our goals for other city staff. To break down those advanced commitments, our revenues are down. Again, we have to reset the revenues for building permits, and we have to pick that up on an ongoing basis. And then we have other fall off in revenues, and you can see the items there. I mentioned the recycling aid. That's about $175,000 of that amount. Operating costs of about $10 million. Um, 
as expected, most of that is in employee compensation. Uh, we do have a required 3% pay increase for police and fire. The others are a goal. Um, we will see some savings relative to this number because we do have the retirement system rates now, and they are actually slightly lower. We're assuming about a 7.5% increase in health insurance rates. It's a lower assumption than what we've done in the past. We've usually started at 10%, but we have seen over the last few years slower rate increases. Um, we have a pretty significant, and we see this every year, cost for longevity. Um, so employees that hit certain um, longevity uh, levels get additional pay increases. Police and fire get an education stipend. And then we do have a new issue to address. Um, we, went, we did a holiday for two years in terms of city contributions to police and fire post-retirement benefits. That holiday ends with the 2016 budget, and we have to begin to pay back the, the amount that was uh, sort of the give back for two years. That's about a cost of three-quarters, $800,000 a year that we'll see for the next um, few years. We also have an uh, election cycle, so a full election cycle in 2016. That costs about a half a million dollars. We do um, see that savings in fuel costs that we locked in. That will help. And then, as I said, we have the fleet rates issue because of depreciation. And as I'll get into in a slide on the next, uh, in the next slide, we have to put more uh, contributions into our liability insurance um, fund. And um, what we see is probably about a $1.3 million uh, contribution to both of those issues in the 2016 budget. And we'll have to phase that in over a two- to three-year period to address both the deficit, well, deficits in both funds. And just to touch briefly on insurance, um, what we've seen, this just gives you a time series since 2005 of what our uh, liability losses have been in the insurance fund. And you can see that it roughly stayed within a band of $500,000 to $1 million a year. Starting in 2011 and in 2012, we had a number of incidents that um, uh, resulted in some significant losses and we have to recoup those losses, but we'll have higher premiums um, from our insurance pr provider, um, as well as we have to increase the, the reserves. So that'll be additional uh, drain on um, whatever sort of revenue growth that we'll see over the next um, few years. Uh, again, continuing with the advanced commitments, there are a number of one-time items that were not fully funded in the 2015 budget, um, or uh, revenues that are that we've been using for about four years that have run out. That's the premium stabilization fund. So we have to replace that money on an ongoing basis. Uh, we expect an equity payment from a TID in 2015. And then this full funding issue, for example, um, the 2015 budget adds five neighborhood resource officers in the police department. Those were funded on a one-time basis. Their ongoing cost is about a half a million dollars. Um, the council recently approved uh, seeking a COPS grant for additional police officers. If that's approved, that requires a city match. So that's about a million dollars of basically things that have been started in the 2015 budget that we have to fully fund in 2016. And then the full cost of the pay increase uh, that was provided in 2015 is about $800,000. When we look at debt service and our capital costs, we, if we borrow about $77 million, which is a rough estimate right now, we'll have better numbers over the next few weeks as we get information from the agencies. 
but that's um, about 70 million less than what's authorized in the SIP, so quite a bit less, but it's 20 million more than what we um, borrowed last year. So um, if that number goes up, then uh, that $77 million goes up based on what we're actually seeing. Uh, obviously, we'll have higher debt service, and that will affect the, um, the property tax estimate. Uh, just a quick uh, review again of the levy limits and how they work. So everything is tied to what's called net new construction. So that's new buildings constructed in the city or remodeling of buildings and things like that. When we look at that um, estimate for 2016, it's about two and a quarter percent. We've seen much uh, great improvement in that over the last few years. We also have carryover, so unused levy limit capacity from the 2015 budget. That's a little under $300,000. As I said, the real sort of uh, driver on what the ultimate increase will be in property taxes is how much debt we issue and what the debt service is on that. And as you can see, about each million dollars of debt service, which is a little under $8 million of borrowing, uh, adds about a half a percent to the levy and the mill rate and taxes on the average value home. And as these limits can be exceeded through a voter referendum. So we can make a, a rough estimate of what the city levy will be based on the levy limits as well as that borrowing estimate. When we look at our taxable property, um, we've seen some, from the assessor, we've seen um, really a return to growth, which is good. Um, our assessed values for residences are up 4%. We're seeing overall taxable property almost 5%, and the average value home is up 3.5%, so all good indicators. So when we take those numbers and we look at the, what the levy will go up with that amount of borrowing, uh, a little over 4%, and the mill rate will actually fall because the um, property values are going up faster than the levy. Taxes on the average value home will go up about 3%. That's primarily because the average home value is going up by that amount. I will say, though, that that levy increase is, uh, is larger than what we've seen over the last couple of years, where it's varied between about 25 and 3%. Um, just again, uh, quickly touch on the levy limits. We've seen that the $371 million was how much net new construction we had in 2013. Quite a bit of growth in 2014 to 525 million. And um, uh, that's how the levy limit's calculated. And you can see the 2.23%. What I do want to point out is that that 2.23% is applied against the levy net of our debt service. So when you look at that amount that's raised, about $3 million of property tax capacity for the operating budget, it's really only about a 1.3% um, increase in our total general fund budget setting aside debt service. So it's not a large increase when we look at, for example, um, pay increases for police and fire going up 3%. So those are some of the issues that we're having to contend with. Another issue that's out there is we have, uh, the state has a program called the Expenditure Restraint Program, where the city gets uh, um, about $6.8 of state aid by keeping its growth in general fund costs, net of debt service, to a rate that is below inflation plus 60% of that net new construction number. This is sort of the flip side of the fact that we got savings from fuel uh, because fuel prices have dropped so much. Well, the result of that fuel price drop is low inflation. And so what we have now is a limit on how much we can grow our costs of about 1.5%. 
And so if we are able to increase our spending because we find other revenues or something like that, we have to really keep in mind how that's going to affect the, um, uh, our qualifying for the expenditure restraint program and that $6.8 million of state aid. So that's another factor we'll have to keep in mind as we build the uh, 2016 budget. Um, this is just, uh, we've been doing some forecast modeling um, and uh, we use this a little bit with the Board of Estimates. This is just uses a number of assumptions to sort of take a look out over the next five years of what we um, will see based on those assumptions and based on what we do with the capital budget, which is a major element of what those uh, property tax increases will be. So these factors assume after 2016, we see 2% uh, growth in uh, salaries. Uh, we make plan design changes in health insurance every year. Uh, we slow down dramatically the rate of growth in the capital budget. And um, so those are just examples. Obviously, any sort of factors that change in the meantime will change these numbers. The bars are just so the gap that we're facing by year based on those assumptions. The dotted line is the levy increase, and the solid line is taxes on the average daily home increase. And you'll see that the big driver, as I said before, in those increases in 17 and 18 um, are the size of the capital budget. And that's a, uh, an issue that we'll have to deal with here in the council as we put this 2016 and the budget and the SIP together with that. So you can see the deficit estimate for 16, about 8 million. The deficit sort of is under, you know, relatively manageable in those out years, but again, those those assumptions are pretty key, particularly holding the line on health insurance costs, which may or may not be possible. Uh, another, as I said, another factor is um, really how much borrowing are we going to do over the next few years? How big is the capital budget? And um, because we're constrained on the operating uh, levy side with levy limits and not constrained on the debt service side. It's really how much we borrow that affects what, how much property taxes are going to increase. The top line on that graph is um, how much we would borrow on average every year if we did everything in the 2015 SIP as it was adopted. That clearly will not happen, but if we did, that's where our uh, debt service ratio to overall general fund costs, we'd go from about 14% to almost 23%. Just to, uh, by example, if we drop that um, to about 95 million a year, you see we'd sort of top out at about 17%, and um, that, that has a, a related effect on, on the property tax estimates. So uh, finally, um, sort of with that backdrop, what are the operating budget instructions that the mayor gave to the agencies? Um, basically, no growth uh, except for these costs to continue, which we refer to as the longevity and steps um, for employee pay, those cost to continue items that I talked about that have to be fully funded in 2015 and already bargain pay increases, so those will be police and fire. Uh, we also um, requested, as we have in previous budgets, that agencies give us a separate plan for how they would reduce their budget by 3% compared to that uh, 2015 base. In order to give uh, the mayor and the council sort of a, a broader array of options to choose from, we have um, asked that the agencies provide sort of supplemental requests outside of the, um, the no growth budget uh, priorities that they may want to um, have funded. 
So uh, we're in the midst now of reviewing the capital budget um, with the mayor, and then the agencies are working on the operating budgets, and we'll um, send those in, submit those in early um, August. And um, I think with that, I have, that is my quick run through. And happy to entertain any questions. Are there any questions? Discussion? Uh, the general fund and the library fund together are um, of around $280 million. Alder Rimmel? I'm hearing a lot more about the parking utility with Judge Joe Square, and you talked about pilot. If we you know, um, rehabilitate this the parking structure and close it down, how, is that factored into this budget? That loss of revenue, because uh, in terms of the the out years, yeah, um, no. So that I think that effect we probably looked at was um, about three hundred thousand dollars over the seventeen months. So that's another issue we, we would have to deal with. Okay. Thanks. Uh, I don't see any questions. My mic's not on. Thank you. Uh, nobody else in the queue, no more questions? If not, thank you very much. Uh, and we'll keep you posted. Um, where are we on the agenda? We took a couple items out of order. We have to do 13? Okay, on 13, Alderman Cheeks. Uh, move to take up item number 13. Second. Motion and a second. We have 13 before us. Let me just ask a question here. Um, is this the only item on the agenda that we haven't completed? Yep. Yes, thank you. All right. Questions, discussion on item 13 on the report? Sorry. Alderwoman Estridge, did you have some questions? That was the dogs. I'm sorry. Um, Um, if there's somebody here who can speak to it, I think um, the intention of this is that we would get a, a brief report. Um, we do have. Sure. Thank you. Okay. Hello, Marla Eddy, City Forestry. Um, if you recall, we had sent out uh, an email to all alders on June 8th. Um, to, you know, bring out the awareness of our proposed treatment cycle, um, which we currently are under a two-year treatment cycle, um, and we're right on target with finishing uh, this year um, as we had planned. And uh, as we always do, um, we learn from our experiences. We learn from our uh, fellow cities, um, and we also keep up with any field research that's going on out there. And uh, through that field research, uh, we have learned um, from uh, Dr. Chris Williamson, our entomologist here at UW-Madison, who's been doing some trials in um, Milwaukee, Oak Creek, and Village of Newburgh. Uh, if you recall, Village of Newburgh was our first infestation in the state. 
and where he is actually going out and measuring the um, concentration or the parts per million of product in our, those leaves of trees that have been treated. Um, the city of Milwaukee actually um, hired Dr. Williamson to do some uh, testing of their trees because they've been treating for such a long time. And the conclusion of that treatment is that at, um, at the three-year mark that there is product still in the leaves of the ash trees um, at low concentrations, but the low concentration um, has proven that those low concentrations still in, um, are effective against the larvae of EAB. So with that, um, we are proposing and we're here today to talk about forwarding a three-year treatment cycle, which would be a cost savings of about $100,000 in chemical. We do not have the prices of the chemical at this time, um, but that's our estimate. But we have some really good positives with this three-year treatment cycle. And those positives are um, a more manageable process of treating about 3,300 trees. We would only need two treatment crews instead of four. We'd have less wounding of the tree, less uh, pesticide in the environment, um, and bringing it to a level that we feel comfortable that we're providing protection against the emerald ash borer. So our hope today is really to um, answer any questions, hear any concerns, because we're going to be forwarding our budget in about a week and a half, and that, that's part of our budget. Um, so we wanted to see if there's anything that we should be aware of or, um, I guess, get a litmus about what everybody feels as we forward that item. Okay, let me just mention one other thing. I'm not, I got so many numbers in my head from this afternoon's meetings, but I think between streets and parks, we are now looking at about three and a quarter million dollars between the two of you for capital budget for Emerald Ash Borer next year, and that's an ongoing number that will modestly decline over the next 10 to 12 years, correct? Oops. I'm not positive of street's exact number for next year because there will be equipment cost that are embedded in that, but it is very close to that number from my understanding, yes. Okay. Um, Alderman Ahrens. Um, it, we recently passed the um, uh, linear foot tax or whatever, the additional tax on um, uh, for forestry uh, for that would come out to be about a million dollars this year and hopefully the same next year. So if we're able to really increase the, the treatment efficacy by 50%, reduce the number of uh, crews or whatever, um, why aren't we treating more trees? Well, um, oops, sorry. Um, so when we look at the treatment of trees, um, again, the issues surrounding the criteria, the treatment criteria, 
um, you know, things that are less than 10 inches in diameter still have the issue as far as wounding goes and eventually girdling the tree. Um, so that doesn't go away. The uh, overhead uh, power line issue where the tree has been um, reduced, crown reduction, so that it fits into its growing space, um, that still exists. And then the condition of the tree. So we've really narrowed it down to um, those criteria that merit um, looking at and doing the removal process and restart rebuilding our forest. Um, so those things still exist. Um, but these are, that criteria is limited to terrace trees. There are tens of thousands of trees that would need treatment in parks that are not being treated. So can we extend the treatment to some parks trees? Oh, I'm sorry, wrong. Oops, wait. Um. Okay. Uh, so uh, Charlie Romine's assistant park superintendent. Um, so, yeah, that's something we, we talked about uh, really on the EAB task force two-plus years ago when we were kind of making those decisions on what trees would be treated and what, what would not. Um, and we certainly anticipated that question would come up again here. Um, again, it comes down to a few things, a matter of cost and, and where you, well, where we choose to spend the dollars. Uh, in the parks, what we've done to date, obviously, is be very aggressive with uh, removal and replanting. Um, uh, we also have the adoption program where, where private citizens, businesses, etc., can go ahead and, and do that. Um, I, I would prefer not to be uh, honestly be treating a lot of park trees. It runs into a thing. It runs into a situation where uh, if we treat 20 trees in a park, what about the 21st? If we treat three trees in that park, why not seven trees in this park? Um, it really would become, uh, I, I just would imagine it being a, a complete administrative uh, nightmare to try and figure out where we start and where we end. There are certainly more trees in the parks that meet treatment criteria than do on the streets just because the parks are a more favorable growing environment than on, along the terrace. So I really don't know where we would begin and where we would, where we would end on that. Um, and so can it be done? Of course it can be done. Um, but I think that uh, going back two years when the decision was made, the parks were a good place to start turning the forest over. Um, as opposed to trying to hold on to what we've had, what we've had in the past with the ash trees, there's still quite an expense associated with treating ash trees. Well, just I, I don't find the the notion that it's a difficult administrative decision-making process to be the reason not to do it. Um, I mean, the decisions have to be made whether that's 20 in this park and 30 in that, and establish some equitable, doable uh, criteria for doing it. It seems that, that we have this great benefit now, a great new understanding, I should say, of what the treatment is and what it allows. And rather than making that um, more available to parks, um, even though that may be administratively difficult to come up with a process, 
still seems to be something to turn away from from a process that is incredibly valuable rather than uh, just cutting cutting down and, and replacing them. Well, and I don't disagree with you. And coming up with a process, honestly, would not be the problem. Um, it would be very easy to come up with a process and come up with a criteria. I would suspect that there's many elders that are here that would understand that when we established the criteria for terrace trees a couple of years ago, um, we've been questioned quite thoroughly in many cases about the criteria. And why is there a criteria? And why don't we just treat all trees? Um, I don't expect any empathy or sympathy on the administrative side. I didn't, I didn't mean to, to, to put that forward in that way. Um, certainly, if there's direction given uh, to move forward in parks trees, we can. We could have done that two years ago. Like I said, it's really balancing off the costs of treating more trees in, or treating trees in parks and opening that, moving forward that versus other things that can be done with the money. Just one more comment. It was my understanding that the money that was available would, that we could only do the terrorist trees because that was the only monies that were available. And that to go beyond terrorist trees would be not just administratively difficult, but that we just, terrorist trees alone exhausted what our resources at hand were. Uh, is that correct? Well, I mean, given what we the criteria were, that we've had, given, given the three criteria or four criteria that have been mentioned. Well, given, I'll, I'll take. I'm going to try and answer your question. Basically, what we put forward was that we thought there was going to be somewhere between 11 and 12,000 terrace trees that that would be treatable, yes. and we put forward what that budget number would be. There was discussion had at the time on whether parks trees should also be included. There was a decision made not to include park trees at that at that time. So could funding have been made available? I, I suppose those budgetary choices could have been made to include parks trees. They weren't. Um, so now I, I, I suppose there's another opportunity, you know, to consider that on whether some of the savings that we wind up getting goes towards park trees or not, or to other priorities, whether that's within the parks division or or elsewhere in the city. I, I would like to throw in here, um, some of the alders probably on the west side are familiar with this because they're seeing this gypsy moss returning. Mm -hmm. And it's, the last time we did a treatment was in 2011. So um, over 600 acres were treated in the city. And um, calls are coming back in, and there's going to be costs associated with that. Um, as we move forward and we won't know what those costs are um, because there's certain criteria that you have to go through and look at that so that treatment in 2011 um, was just oh, just about twenty four thousand dollars and that was that doesn't include the staff time of going out looking for egg masses counting them following the requirements um, holding sending out letters to all the property owners that, hey, you have the right to not be in a spray block. Please let us know if you object. Um, and at the time, we sent over 4,000 letters, and no one objected. Um, so, you know, I think we've got some other threats that are coming here. Um, and then, you know, I, I do say that within our parks system, 
you know, we have a known quantity. We knew what we had on the street. We had a very good inventory that took several years to complete. Um, but in our in our park system, I think there's the challenge of, you know, actually inventorying and being familiar with where all the ash are um, and, and going through that process and making some decisions about what that cost is. Alderman Verveer. Thank you, Mayor. If I could just ask a, a follow-up to the gypsy moth issue that you just raised, Ms. Eddie. The, so in the past, do I remember correctly that our costs were rather minimal because the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources makes these aerial applications and they charge us a relatively modest amount. I think guess you said $24,000 per annually in the past. Would that, are you anticipating that your operating budget requests will include an amount similar and is it done with the DNR as in prior years? The, um, I'm not sure if the gypsy moth, uh, you're, you're correct, Elder Revere, is that the DNR was the facilitator of uh, securing a vendor to provide the aerial spray for counties. So it's done on a county level, and then each municipality would forward something to their county to be treated. Um, I not sure if they are still facilitating that process where they can provide a reduced cost. Um, I'm not sure how things have come or shaked out with this DNR budget pro process with the state. So that's something on the radar. But what happens with the process, if it is still with DNR, we have to um, investigate where we have egg masses those things won't be occurring until September, October. Um, we have to rely on the insect to start laying, turning into a moth and start laying eggs. Then that determines if we have a, enough eggs out there to be a problem that would merit a spray according to the DNR requirements. So unfortunately, the insect does not follow the budgetary process. So, that, so you're, you're saying as a follow-up, you're saying that so it, as of today, you do not plan to ask us to fund gypsy moth eradication in 2016. Um, I'm just curious how this interplays with again our main topic, emerald ash borer, and the savings that you're asking it, us. If we did, it would be a supplemental request. Um, but we've logged over, I believe, 50 calls, nuisance calls from specifically more in the Nakoma neighborhood? We don't know at this time if we're going to have to, if we're going to be included in the 2016 budget or not. It's too early to tell. And, and we won't know until October, November, if we need to recommend a, a treatment in 2016. Um, we know that it, we know that it appears to be coming back. The numbers are building back up. That, that's what we know at this point. We don't know if it's going to be a, uh, we have to do it in 16, we have to do it in 17, we have to do it in 18, but it appears to be on the horizon. I'll just say on that point, thank you, that uh, Superintendent Romines, that that I, I think it's something in the past the council has overwhelmingly supported via late budget amendments, uh, and if we need to do it, I think we certainly should do it at, um, in a timely fashion as it relates to 
fighting gypsy moth. Anyway, back to the EAB and the chemical treatment uh, modifications that you're um, just asking our blessing for tonight. If I could just start with the process question on the EAB directly, and this is either for the superintendent, assistant superintendent, or forester. But in the past, we had received annual written reports from the EAB task force uh, giving us updates. I suppose those also were seen at the Board of Estimates and I'm sure at the Board of Park Commissioners. Is tonight's colloquy taking the place of an annual written task force report as to our progress and observations? For example, I've always found helpful the map that shows where geographically in the city forestry is planning the very painful preemptive uh, removals of our ash trees, particularly in the terraces. It, will we still be seeing something in writing? When I looked in Legistar, uh, I don't have my computer with me, and I didn't look on my phone now, but I didn't see any any written report with this item. Uh, to, to answer the questions, and I think the way you ask them is no and then yes. No to is this replacing that, and yes, you will see it. Um, November, uh, as I think when we've historically done it, we're here tonight because we wanted to let you know it's part of our budgetary process. Uh, my suspicion is that the forestry operational request uh, with the gypsy moth hanging in the air will be at lower than um, 2015 levy amounts, kind of in a sense not asking for it before we know we need it, but hoping that that's kind of held there if it is needed. You know, we don't want to budget for something that's not necessary, uh, but that's kind of the process. But we'll be back here in November the full written report, the full report on how much we've treated this year, the exact number we ended up in treatment, where we'll be treating next year, and where we are on preemptive removals uh, moving forward into 2016. Thank you, Mr. Knapp. And then my main question that I'd like to ask you all is, so we already, you already, we already asked and you answered the issue of if we can save, what, approximately $100,000 and fewer uh, annual chemical treatments of our terrace ash trees that meet our criteria, you know, why can't we do more? Why can't we do them in the parks? And obviously that's been asked and answered. So my question is, if I remember what Ms. Eddy said, we would save on two chemical treatment crews in forestry by going to the new schedule. So as of tonight, what, what do you forecast your forces would do, uh, you know, assuming that you don't have vacancies and that you still have the full robust forestry staffing that we have provided you as part of our EAB plan, uh, would those forces have a more uh, um, ambitious uh, um, preemptive removal schedule? Uh, will we be seeing, hopefully, this is my preference, that we have a more robust replacement planting schedule rather than waiting what could be two years for a replacement tree to be planted? So could you just comment on, assuming that you go to the longer schedule um, based on, you know, the, the research we know today, where do you see your crews that are we freed up from less chem chemical treatments uh, working? Sure, love to. So our chemical treatment crews right now are made up of one full-time employee and two seasonals. So when we, when we put out the number of our savings, that's primarily chemical savings, but it's also labor savings as well. So what we would be doing is we'd be reducing the number of seasonal forestry special assistants that we bring in uh, because we would have fewer treatment crews. So what, uh, what that would be freeing up is uh, essentially two full-time employees who would obviously still be on the rolls, 
And yes, they would be able to focus more on removal and replanting. Um, the terrace, of course, is, is a big part of this, but uh, longer and more stretched out is going to be the efforts in parks. So while we're moving aggressively through the terrace and we have a lot of that staffing that you all generously provided for us to work through this, um, that's being focused primarily in the terrace now, uh, a little bit in parks. And so by freeing up those two bodies, obviously that gives us additional hours, again, to get through our removals, get into replanting uh, sooner, uh, less issues with running out of hours in a day, and get into the parks quicker as well. Now the park side won't manifest itself for a few years, but it, it does help us get our removal and replanting goals met quick, more quickly and easily. So I'll try to make this my last follow-up question, and thank you again, Assistant Superintendent, for that response. So, and I didn't realize that the $100,000 was included seasonal forces. I figured it was mostly all the actual chemical costs. So the, by having freeing up two full-time F, two FTEs, would do you, do you think that that would make any appreciable difference in the schedule that we know, for example, the map that I presume we've all seen in terms of what year, you know, your eradication crews will, your removal, I should say, preemptive removal crews will be in, in the different aldermanic districts? Will that, do you foresee those years changing at all? Uh, not largely. It'll, it'll make some uh, differences around the edges. You know, instead of moving into a district in July 20th, it might be June 30th. Because, again, what we're gaining with those two bodies, if you will, it's not two bodies for a full year. Our treatment window is three and a half months. So you're talking about six to 800 hours of full-time staff time that would have been towards a treatment that won't. So the difference will be around the edges more than, hey, we're going to be there a year early. It won't be anything like that. Thank you. That's very helpful. I appreciate it. Thanks. Alder Pohn. Yeah, I guess uh, earlier we had a discussion about the the urban forest special charge, and I, and then or even earlier the uh, the director of finance gave a, a little thing about ERP. Can you can you elaborate more on the effect of the special area charge and the and ERP? I mean, just so that we don't run into like, hey, we can run this up and. Sure. So we're um, we're actually treating the uh, urban forestry special charge as a uh, as a separate fund. So as a result, it's not a revenue to the general fund. Mm -hmm. If it were a revenue to the general fund and we were to spend, um, you know, increase spending as a result, then we would have expenditure restraint program, um, perhaps qualification problems with that. So if we if we add general fund revenues and we increase spending commensurately, that's where we might run into uh, expenditure restraint program problems. So we don't get into problems because at some point we spend the money. Right, but we're spending it in a separate fund outside of the general fund. Okay, thank you. Alder Rummel. Thank you. Um, I guess sort of just to give you general feedback, the more trees you save, the better. So I know that you know that, but um, just saying it out loud to reinforce what other people are saying. But I guess I'm hearing a lot of ways you could spend that money if you saved it and the implication. So I don't just want to say blanket, oh, go to parks and start, you know, inoculating trees, although part of me says go to parks and start inoculating trees. But maybe you could give us some kind of short, shorter term before this 
big report, like what what's the best strategy given uh, the potential of gypsy moth and what you could do with this the savings? Could you do more trees? Would you start planting more? You know, what are the options so that we're just not like giving you our best judgment on the floor of the council? Maybe we have some briefly written memo to help us uh, help you. Thanks. I'll let City Forester Eddie weigh in a little bit more about the, the best options and maybe how we can give you some interim ideas. I, I would say uh, we as a staff absolutely recognize the, the frustration and the, the kind of the, the menace that's before us and what it's doing to our forest. We do not want to see our trees in Tenney Park gone any more than anyone else. Uh, I would say, as I've continued to say, that it is the selfless thing to do to move forward with replanting biodiversity in our system. Um, we are only delaying the inevitable if we do increase spending on treating and tree park, park trees. Uh, to say we shouldn't do it, I would not do that. I, I, but I do think it's something to be cautious about uh, as, as an option. Uh, drawing that line, as Charlie alluded to, is a problem. But beyond drawing the line, um, I think there's a real question for the vibrancy of the urban forest if that's the right thing to do. I don't want to put Marlowe on the spot with that kind of issue. But from my opinion, when you look at it and look at what, you, what, what it means, it costs a lot and delays the inevitable. And what we're really doing is asking for a future uh, city to take the, the loss and canopy that is coming. Um, and that's not something I'm real comfortable doing. But I'll have Marla, if she would, talk a little bit about like some of the options, but then the, if that's what you're asking for, you're asking for a memo and, and preparation. I, I just want to clarify. The, mem the memo. Okay, we can do that. Sorry. So the the second part of the question had to do with what are the other options or um, could you repeat your question? Well, as, I mean, when I pushed the button, I was starting out to say one thing, and then I heard the conversation where you discussed all the things you could do with planting, et cetera. So it occurred to me that you know, my one goal would be to save more trees, but, of course, obviously there's other things to balance. So the question was, if you had the savings, what are the other options to, I don't know, save, use that the $100,000? Do you do more treatment? Do you do more plantings? Um, you know, there's just a lot of factors. It's hard to give you the best advice on the fly is, was my bottom line. Sure. You know, I, I think when we're, when we're looking at um, EAB and this insect, I mean, we're, we're doing as much as we can to plan for it. Um, and part of the report in November will share with you, since we found EAB, we do have a couple of areas where we found infestation zones. Alder Cheeks would understand over in his district. We also had found uh, an infestation or confirmed something on private property over on Cottage Grove Road. Um, and the key is is trying to strike that balance of what we can do with the trees that haven't been treated 
and making sure that they don't self-prune themselves and start falling apart. Um, and, you know, one of the things is um, I think we have to take a look at from my perspective is that there's a lot of private ash. And, you know, I know what the costs were associated with private property if people couldn't remove their tree. Those are going to be costs that I see coming here in the future. Um, if they don't remove the tree and we condemn it, there's going to be costs associated with that. Um, so, you know, I think we have to be kind of cognizant of, you know, we're doing the best we can, but those trees that aren't treated are a liability out there. Thank you, Marla. It sounds like Alderman is looking forward to a memo. Um, is there any other discussion? Not seeing anyone left in the queue. Uh, this would be a good time for introductions from the floor. Um, let's see, we'll start with Alder Palm. Sure. I have uh, file number 39373, a resolution to amend the project for public space contract for the Madison Public Market Business Plan uh, with a referral to the Board of Estimates. Second. Second. Um, I heard a motion and a second. Um, all those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed? No? Thank you. Uh, Alder Palm. We'll do Alder Fair next. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to introduce file 39376, directing the city engineer to establish a public private voluntary benchmarking program and referral assist to the Sustainable Madison Committee. Second. Motion and a second. All those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Brilliant. The ayes have it. Uh, Alder Clear. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I move to introduce Legistar 39379, changing the name of the Commission on People with Disabilities to the Commission on Disability Rights for referral to CCOC and Commission on People with Disabilities. That's your second. Motion and a second. All those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Ayes have it. Alder McKinney. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Legislative file number 39386, creating section 8.125 and amending section 1.083A of the Madison General Ordinances to establish a library facility catering permit. Recommend action. Refer to library board. Second. Motion and a second. Thank you. Uh, all those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. The ayes have it. With no other business, I would entertain a motion to adjourn. Oh, Steve King gets it with a second. Um, all those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Have a good evening. <laughs>